This is Talkin' Mule Deer with your hosts, Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. Talkin' Mule Deer takes you on a journey to learn more about the Mule Deer Foundation, Mule Deer and Blacktail Deer Biology and Management, tips and tactics for hunting, conservation issues, and even features some of our corporate and celebrity partners. Now, let's start talking Mule Deer. Hey, this is Jody Stemmler. And I'm Steve Belinda, and welcome back to another edition of Talk of Mule Deer, Mule Deer Foundation's podcast. Today, we have someone that I've known for quite a long time. We have my brother, Chris Belinda, who's been a taxidermist for 35 plus years and is going to be talking to us about tips for uh, a taxidermist concern when you're out on your mule deer hunts this year. And Jody, who's our other guest? Yeah, we've got uh, my good friend, Amy Ray, who is the ownerhood of Sisterhood of the Outdoors. Um, Amy is a a dear friend and a person that has uh, spent a lot of time hunting in the West, even though she'll she'll sound a little Southern to you, but but she has spent a lot of time hunting out here in the West and sends a lot of women out on hunting trips in the West. And so she's going to give us some tips that she passes on to the gals she talks to and other people and give some advice on what it's like to come from a, uh, a state in the East or just a non-Western state and what it's like to do your first mule deer hunt in the West. So Amy, welcome. Chris, welcome. We're glad to have you guys today. Thanks, Jody. Hey, glad to be here. So Amy, um, in your business, you give advice and you actually book folks on. So tell us a little bit of uh, Sisterhood of the Outdoors and how you you started the company or how it came to be. And, and really some of the, let's just say, top five questions that you get asked for folks looking uh, to, to come out west to hunt mule deer. Okay, great. Well, Sisterhood Outdoors uh, was founded um, about five years ago as part of an organization called Babes, Bullets, and Broadheads. And it really was just three friends um, that got together and decided they needed more women friends to hunt with and wanted to grow that camaraderie and have the the same opportunities that men have had forever. And it's really no different. It's just a different set of friends. And the goal has always been to empower that and create those opportunities for women. So what we do is we run a calendar all year for mentored hunts. So our field staff are experts. We work with great guides and outfitters. And with partnering with them, we put together a trip. You book online, you pay a deposit. And from the time you're our booking guests, we prepare you for a hunt. So everything that you might need, um, all kinds of questions get asked. We're always there for our our hunters. So when we show up at an outfitter, everybody has a license, everybody has the proper gear. We're ready to roll. And there's not a whole lot of unknowns. All of the fees are paid at once. All the tips are paid at once. And it just makes a seamless process for women to enjoy the outdoors. And I would say too, that a lot of our hunters are on their first trip, whether it's their first time with mule deer. They may be a hunter, but never did mule deer. They hunt ducks, but never hunt turkey. Or So we have a lot of first, but not necessarily a lot of first hunters, but we also do brand new hunters that have never hunted before. So it takes a lot of work, a lot of mentoring, but it's a great organization. We take over 150 women a year outdoors and we're growing. So it's awesome. They're super fun hunts. I did your goose hunt, uh, your, your, um, it was a fundraiser that you guys did a, a right. year or so ago, and that was an outstanding time. But getting to know the organization a little bit better, you guys spend a lot of time um, getting to know guides in the area and, and making sure that those guides understand what it's like to guide women and first-time hunters as well. Is that correct? Yeah, both both matter. So some outfitters are really 
more welcoming to having a lodge full of women. Accommodations are better suited for women. There's a level of comfort there that you're not going to get flirted with, that you're going to be taken seriously. And we also want someone who can not necessarily just take you out and say, well, there's a mule deer, go. But we want them to mentor us a little and slow it down and share their life experience with us. Because, Jody, you remember like the stories around dinner and after the hunt are just as much of a memory as the hunt itself. And so we try to create that atmosphere for fellowship in the outdoors. And our guides are a big part of that. That's right. And that's not any different from men. I mean, this is, yeah. you're, you're providing a service for women. The, the difference is that sometimes the way women experience it and men experience it are maybe different. Some women are completely comfortable going into a men's hunt camp. Some aren't. But more than anything, it's presenting an opportunity to learn and to guide women uh, on an experience that may be new to them that they never would have had the chance to do otherwise. And that, that takes a certain kind of patience sometimes. And that's one of the things. Now, Amy, are you saying men don't outfitters. have that patience? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just uh, saying certain outfitters. <laughs> it could be a female outfitter. But, you know, I think just having them prepared and being willing to take the time with a new hunter is the same whether it's a youth or a female or a new male. I mean, if you take a, a new hunter hunting, it requires some you know, some thought put into the process of what you're going to prepare them for and what your guide's going to prepare them for and how they're going to be treated at the outfitter. You know, if you take a youth hunting or a, or even a lady hunting and they have a bad first time experience, we're not doing anything to help the initiative, right? Right. So we just try to create, we just try to create the atmosphere where they, they, they kind of want to come back, you know? Well, it's about being comfortable and having fun. And, and, you know, part of that is. Absolutely really understanding what you need to do. So if you're, you know, I know I fielded thousands of questions through my career from, from friends, family, and, and the public because of my position as a biologist and, and the organizations I've worked with, you know, and you seem to get back to two things. The, the person who thinks he knows it all and they call you the day before they leave and they say, I'm coming on a hunt, leaving tomorrow. There's six of us. We all have deer tags and we all want to kill you know, 200 inch mule deer and we've got three days to hunt and they've never been to a spot. Um, they've never been out West. They are living at, you know, 500 foot elevation and going to hunt at 9,000 feet. And so that, you know, what ends up happening is, as they show up, they're unprepared. So, you know, turning it back to the group here, uh, Chris, Amy, Jody, what are the top things, top tips you guys have as your prep? I know for me, one of them is, um, you know, understanding how you're going to take care of your meat once you get something down. I won't hunt with someone that won't carry game bags because, A, they're not prepared to deal with the meat um, and, and get it out of the woods. But, B, they're going into the hunt thinking they're not going to need them, which means it's affecting their attitude. So, you know, uh, I guess, Chris, you know, fr from your perspective, from someone who's come out west, not just from taxidermy, you know, what are those things that you put on the top of your list from a prep standpoint? Uh, hi guys. Uh, my my biggest thing as a taxidermist and as a hunter, it has to be a sharp knife. Nothing <laughs> destroys meat or a making a job harder than having a dull or an insufficient blade in your hand. Uh, with today's technology, with with the replaceable scalpel blades and the new carbons being out, everybody should put as much money into a good hunting knife or 
butchering equipment as they do their scope, their clothing, their rifle. Uh, that's all part of the equipment. Number two would probably be uh, knowledge of field preparation, uh, the gutless method versus the old remove the entrails, air it out, come back to it later. Uh, and Chris, you, you know, say that as a taxidermist uh, mainly because you know, the cuts you need to make as a taxidermist, but also the blood staining. Is that correct? That's correct. I mean, think about it. You, you got a 300-pound mule deer down on a steep terrain, and the guy comes out and he says, I've always gutted it. Now you got blood mess, entrails, you're rolling around trying to take a picture. You know, it's getting dark on you. You're, you're rushing around. Uh, it just makes a, a situation a lot worse than what if you're prepared on what to do even if you haven't done it yourself, talk to somebody that's done the gutless method, preparing it, moving it to a better site to work on it. You know, good headlamp is number four for me, besides a good sturdy backpack. So, I mean, those things to me really play critical. All right, Amy, how about you? I think the number one planning for mule deer for us is um, – Determine if you're, if it's bow or rifle and be prepared for that take of game. And coming from the South, I usually tell my girls to zero their rifles at 200, which is not real common in the area that I hunt whitetail in the South. So that can change your um, ballistics on your rifle. And then my other recommendation is I always shoot my rifle at elevation once I arrive at my hunting camp and in Colorado for mule deer. So that I know that traveling didn't affect it. We try to get our guests a day at the range in advance of their hunting. Um, one of my favorite things is good pair of boots. Um, can't go wrong with broken waterproof, in. broken in, <laughs> Gore-Tex. Um, maybe a pair of gaiters to go on top of them if you're going to get into the snowier weather with mule deer. Because I've, I've hunted mule deer where we were closer to a ranch and it was a mix of spot and stalk and a mix of sitting and waiting. So that's a kind of a blended um, level of, you know, exercise for hunting. And we have a lot of new hunters. So I always tell them I've been told, I don't know if this is true or not, but it's been my guide for a while. But if I can jog three and a half miles in Georgia, I can probably walk a mile at elevation. And not be dying. <laughs> so I try to tell my guests, you know, be prepared for altitude. And I know that I do better when I drive out west um, to acclimate slower than if I fly and hit, you know, the Denver airport and then go straight up to elevation. It does take its toll on me. I can tell a difference. You mentioned some really good points, Amy, that, you know, the effective range and the difference between hunting whitetails in the, the east or south, whether it be a rifle or a bow, you know, uh, the conversation I have and, you know, Chris is coming out with his son to hunt uh, mule deer in Wyoming with me this year, you know, I and another friend, I said, you know, comfortable 300 yards is an average shot. Be able to shoot beyond that if you if you can. And that that's not really normal for whitetails. And then for a bow. Uh, you know, you think about where you're mule deer hunting with a bow, you're either hunting at Alpine along the timberline or you're down in the sage. And so, you know, your shots are going to be further than normal. That doesn't mean you can't get with under 30 yards, but, you know, being able to increase your range 
out to 40, 50, 60 yards, and some people even go beyond that, is going to open up new options and more opportunities for you. Well, that's a good point, Steve. As a taxidermist consideration, hit where you're aiming, uh, shooting a 300 wind mag with a 250 grain bullet, hitting them in the neck, or you know somewhere in the vitals that's going to ruin a cape doesn't do a preparatory mount. You know, right there, you've ruined your whole job for going out to bring home a trophy. So, I mean, learn windage, learn elevation, practice with a weapon that you're proficient with. Yeah. And Jody, I know you've been doing some scouting uh, down in Colorado, and, and some of the things you've been looking at is is the quality of glass. What What are your recommendations there? Yeah, so we, this is, you know, when you're coming into an out-of-state camp, a lot of times you're going to be doing a uh, a guided hunt, but not necessarily. And and we are scouting, my husband drew a great elk tag, so we've been able to get over onto the West Slope to scout that unit a couple times so far this year. And and the, the first thing before I get to my glass observations was um, if you're do, doing a DIY is having quality mapping opportunities. And I, I love my Onyx. Um, we've been able to add a lot of waypoints there and be able to, to note and see the different elevational changes, um, do the hybrid overlays of, of topo maps with the satellite and really understand vegetation. And that's been great. But we're a little old school too. And to be able to uh, to balance that with quality topo maps is good as well. So we got a my topo of the uh, game management unit he's going to be hunting in. And we can cross-reference that back with the, the digital maps uh, that, that help there as well. So, so that would be, those are our two, two, two tools that I absolutely recommend that, that people understand and, and have and, and be able to know what they're dealing with. Because going in, a lot of times, if particularly in a DIY hunt, you've got a huge unit to work from. So, so being able to, from a distance, look at it and say, hmm, this looks like it might be a good area. Okay, there's less roads here. This might be a great place to go, but it also creates some challenges with packing that animal out. There's, there's pluses and minuses. Then for our case, um, and, and it, wherever possible, being able to get in there and scout, whether it's by getting to your unit with a couple of days extra ahead of time or in advance like we are uh, in, in preseason doing some summer scouting, that, that those things make a lot of difference. Um, we were able to get uh, several companies, uh, high, 85 millimeter scopes um, to test out and compare against each other just to, to see because Glassing from a distance, um, you know, particularly getting into a high elevation area and, and glassing down into some draws and, and across ravines and things like that is a really good way to understand how those animals are moving. And, and we've had some really great experiences. I was able to try out a, a, a Swarovski, a Maven scope, a Vortex scope and a Meoptoscope. And they all had their own different benefits. All of them handled well. Uh, low light conditions is where rubber meets the road. So what we found for sure is get the best scope you can afford and 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 stick with it because cheaping out on glasses is not going to help you uh particularly in this distance again back east where i grew up where you grew up steve you don't have to look 600 800 1000 yards and try to you know identify an animal count their points do things like that you have to do that out here right and having good quality glass through a scope or, or and binoculars both uh is really important well, binoculars for me are, you know, I don't hunt with a spotting scope because I'm usually hunting in archery season, but I, I sometimes carry one. But for me, it's the optics on the binoculars. Um, 10 powers are a must. 
and you want as big as objective that you're comfortably carrying. Um, and then a good harness. Uh, some of some of the harnesses out there still put strain on your neck, but the new ones that come out, they might be a little pricier, but you know, being able to carry that on your shoulders after hiking up and down and sitting and glassing, it's going to be worth it. And, you know, you mentioned about paper maps. The reason I carry paper maps is, you know, your phone battery, your GPS battery might die or we may lose satellite connectivity. So being able to navigate and understand terrain, uh, if you're not familiar with it, using a paper map is, map is essential. And there's, there's a lot of places online and there's a lot of e-scouting stuff out there. I think our point is to go out and get it. We don't prefer one over another. Um, what we're saying is, is make sure you know how to do that. And then a couple of the other tips I have, I, we've talked about boots. You know, the altitude issue is real. I've seen people lose their hunts because of altitude sickness. Uh, when Rolaids still was, was coming out with the, you know, their old formula, you could, you know, chew on some Rolaids and the, uh, the, the, the mineral in it would help you acclimate a lot quicker, but you want to drink a lot of water. You want to stay off the booze and you want to carry chapstick. Um, chapstick yeah. is a lifesaver <laughs> in the arid West. And, yep. you know, since I moved out West, still almost, uh, I guess 27, 28 years ago, I, I always have chapstick in my pocket. Um, a multi-tool to help you is, is, you know, besides a good night's also have a knife blade on there. Um, we talked about the, the thing people forget is we can get, you know, a couple foot of snow during early season in the West. So being able to handle the weather, being able to understand, you know, what you should expect and expect the unexpected, um, whether that be your camp or your clothing or in, you know, in a lot of cases it's meat care, you know, you're hunting early season archery, which starts here, uh, in about two weeks in some states, it's going to be 85, 90 degrees. You get an animal down, you have basically less than an hour until spoilage happens. So if you're looking at, you know, getting that meat and salvaging as much as possible as being an ethical hunter, you better be able to know how to cool it down, get it out, get it cooled down and get it home. So um, those are some of my tips. You know, the, the, the other tip I have is is also personal from being a biologist for two different federal agencies is don't call your biologist the day before you leave. Call them in the middle of the summer or her in the middle of the summer. Actually, the best thing to do would probably be email and set up an appointment and say, I would like to talk to you about hunting deer in this area, do some research. And then when you get on the phone, you have some very specific questions. Don't just call them and say, where can I kill a Tell buck? me where the best place is. You know, and because you know what, where'd you see the biggest buck this year? They're they're really busy. They're fielding lots of calls, and they're probably also hunters. Most biologists in the agencies have have either have family that hunts, friends hunt, or hunt themselves. So you know, we know how uh, sacred spots are. But you know, I know I was always more uh, forthcoming with information to people that did their homework. And didn't just call you and 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 basically say, tell me what I, I you know, I've never been there. I'm not going to put tell any time into it. Is. Yeah. And if you did that in June or July, right after you drew a tag, you know, it's going to go over a lot better getting into August or even September and October. So those are my points. But Chris, I want to come back to taxidermy, something you've been doing a long time. And we were talking and we've been talking through the years on specific things you got to care about, you know, and, and I usually break it down into three things. What are your pre-hunt concerns? 
what are your during hunt concerns and what are your post hunt concerns from a taxidermist perspective? If you plan on doing something with uh, the animal that you take uh, in a taxidermy sense. Well, uh, the first pre hunt would be like Jody said earlier, the trophy is in each individual's own mind. Don't let Boone and Crockett numbers influence whether that's a trophy or not. Uh, a youth hunt with a four corns is as big a trophy as a 200 class typical taken with bow equipment. So knowing, knowing what you're looking for and expectating on a Western hunt really makes a difference. Uh, are you going to do a European? Are you going to do skull on a plaque? Or do you want to try to, you know, have a shoulder mount? Uh, during the hunt, same thing. Uh, let's say you make a bad shot, uh, wind drift, you hit him in the neck, exit wounds, excessive, it's dark, you don't feel like messing with the cape. Well, now your chances going European or, you know, rack on a plaque. Uh, cape preparation. I, I tell a lot of people when they go out west, when, they, when my clients say, I'm going out, but I already have three mule deer mounted. And they're going to Colorado, let's say, where, where Judy and Amy talk about. The high country mule deer capes are very valuable today. Uh, there's no reason if you have the capability to waste a beautiful, mature buck cape. Uh, if anything else, you trade that off of a future taxidermy bill or you can sell it outright to some of your taxidermists out west that there's high demand for remounting mule deer. Uh, only because in the heyday, 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, that uh, our dad and our family was, you know, Jackson Hole, Colorado, Utah, those bucks, 180s, were shot regularly, so they didn't mount them. So now they're passed down to another generation. They're like, look at Grandpa's huge mule deer buck he killed, and he doesn't have a cape. But, he, you know, he goes to a taxidermist, of course. Now he has to find a cape. There's only one time a year you get those, and it's a short window. So, Chris, one of the things you taught me as a teenager was the proper way to cape an animal. And, you know, being able to go around the horns, getting down, you know, where to cut, uh, making sure you leave more around the shoulders than you think you're going to need because the taxidermist may need, you know, some to replace. Um, you know, talk about, you know, what folks should be doing, you know, from uh, knowing how to cape an animal out. Uh, well, let's say you've already done all your preparation work. You decided you're going to get this animal mounted. You successful. He's on the ground. Uh, the old tried and true method is the gutless from the back of the ears to the base of the tail. Uh, you skin him out. You get to the, the, the rib behind the shoulder blade and you ring it around the belly. And you can work on that, getting the legs out to the, the elbow a lot easier than you can if you're trying to do it uh, a different way. Because once the head's severed off the carcass behind the ears, you can work on that separately from getting the meat deboned out of the location. You can roll it up and say you'll do it later after you're deboned the meat, get it out of the area. Uh those mounts that everybody sees at these expos you go to at Salt Lake City or 
the Eastman's Hunting Journal, you notice one thing about the taxidermy that's evolved is they're getting bigger and bigger forms. They're actually pedestal mounts or uh, awkward angle mounts that 25 years ago, 20 years ago, you never had that option. That now you're going to need more and more cape to be acceptable for that because let's say you cut it short, you go into your taxidermist and you look at a picture or display he has, you say, I want that. Well, you can't. You don't have enough cape. You haven't done your preparation work to get more than enough, always more than enough. In the East here, we're lucky. Guys get their whitetails like where Amy's from or where I'm from in Pennsylvania. They just bring the whole hide in with the head and the taxidermist removes what's needed. I talked to a, it's funny, uh, this morning I talked with a well-known chemist in the tanning industry uh, because let's say you do successfully get a, a velveted with bow gear or some rifles still have velveted mule deer. There's injection processes that have to be done immediately to preserve those. So preparing to have the right chemical, the right procedure with the hypodermic needle, with the correct chemical, they almost have to be implemented within hours of deceased animal. So that is a huge bonus that you talk to your taxidermist, they'll get you the chemicals or they'll put you online to what you need to order. With today's technology and Amazon, uh, anybody can have it at their fingertips. Uh, but one thing you have to learn to do if you're going to do what we're talking about today, you have to practice getting out heads or getting that hide off of the skull. Most people cringe about it when you talk to them uh, because they'd rather just let somebody else do it. But if you're in a camp situation that it's 65 degrees, you got to get that hide off. Bacteria develops with warm and wet conditions. So practice or go online, look at a YouTube video, talk to, you know, most local taxidermists will let you sit in while they're skinning the head. But by the time you get to a processor, you're going to have to pay to have that professional service done for you at the time before you leave or get on your plane or drive back. Well, nobody likes to... Uh... You know, as I was say, nobody likes to curse themselves by being overprepared and, and, and assuming they're going to need a taxidermist, but right. being prepared by calling them and knowing that is, is better off and, and then not having to use it than it would be if you, uh, you were out in the field and you didn't know what to do and, and lost that cape or lost the velvet on the animal that you were trying to, to preserve and, and, and to be able to honor it by, by being able to see it in your house for years to come. Well, I, 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 I would like to tell people that there's a value in that cape, whether you use it personally or not. Uh, mule deer have become an icon of the West for making beautiful mount additions. There's people that want them outside of the, the sportsman or individual hunter's realm, that there's trophy rooms or decorated restaurants up and down the Western Rocky Mountain spine that, you know, that cape has to come off a deceased animal. You can make artificial antlers. You can put artificial velvet on there. You can do a lot of things. You can carve them out of wood, but if you're going to have the real McCoy, the animal's deceased to get that cape, so you might as well go prepared. And if you don't use it, there's a financial gain for you somewhere down the line. So making connections now allows them to know what your possibilities are in the future. 
so Chris, um, if someone doesn't know how to turn lips, turn ears, do those things, what's your recommendations? Get in a freezer? Yeah, I mean, I take it for granted. My mind goes to where I automatically do that, so I forget that 95% of the people in the field aren't going to have the skills or the quality uh, tools, mostly a scalpel. So if you, you can get the hide off the skull itself, Leave the ears intact. Leave the, the eye orbits and the nasal pad and the lips intact, and you're in a field. Try to brush off any debris, dirt, blood. Don't let it hang in the air. Don't put it in a game bag. Don't let it hang next to your camp. You need to roll that up, face the, face into the skin. Roll it up like a little pillow or a little backpack pad. Get it into a nice, cool, dry place. If you have a cooler, that's ideal. You keep the bugs off it. You keep any sunshine off it. Uh, you know, you got a you got a couple days if you if you're not going to get back to a trailhead, to a cooler or a yeti where there's some ice packs. Uh, then you got another couple days until you get to a processor. But when in doubt, you freeze it out. Uh, no bacteria and and no virus can grow inside of that frozen carcass. Uh, that's skins left on if you were going to be very proficient you'd learn the techniques and be adequate to turn the lips there's an ear opening tool i think i sent steve years ago which that's almost a uh, yeah when you have a brother for a taxidermist you get taxidermy <laughs> tools sent to you for christmas gifts, that's a so. little creepy actually <laughs> i was thinking i want one of those <laughs> 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 well, it's funny because it, it looks like, um, I won't say what it looks like, but uh, it's really weird because you put it, my wife's like, what is that? And you're like, well, that's to turn the ears, not what, you know, similar tools look like in, in gynecology. Yep. But, you know, at the, at the end of the day, it really helps. And, you know, first couple I did, I blow through the end and Chris has been able to fix all that. So it's, you know, he's, he's always told me, make sure if you're going to screw up, do it with a sharp knife. And do it somewhere where I can sew things back together and, and you're not going to see it on a mounted animal. Now, I, I wanted to loop back to Amy here, if you guys don't mind, because uh, Amy, you killed a beautiful bull last year in Wyoming. Um, and that's one of the benefits of, of going with a guide because you right. brought that, you packed that animal out, right? And, and now you were also lucky that it was dang cold. So you probably didn't have to deal with any of some of these <laughs> right. early we, season issues. We were in a lot of snow above the tree line probably elevations of 11, 12,000 feet. And I took a seven by seven elk and we quartered it with the gutless method. Um, because we were so far from camp and we were on horseback, we had to take our quarters and choice cuts of meat and we buried them in the snow. And I actually took my survival knife and chopped some evergreen pine type limbs and covered it up just to kind of keep the odor down. Don't know that if that works or not, Jody, but it was just what I thought of doing at the moment <laughs> in bear country. And yep. we actually caped my skull um, and left it attached to the the skull and the did not do, you know, a full cape that evening. And we took the, um, we drugged the antlers and the cape, two, two or three of us had to pick it up. It was so heavy. We drug it further up the hill away from the meat. And again, packed it in snow. I put some limbs on top of it. Because of safety reasons, we had to leave it overnight and go back to camp. The next morning, one of the Wranglers took a mule team. 
It's about a three hour ride. They rode back and I did lose one of the hindquarters of the elk to a grizzly bear. It was a young boar and they saw him drag the meat off. He didn't claim my carcass. He just scavenged a piece and I was like, well, if he's happy and he's got some elk, tell him to just leave us alone. <laughs> and I was fine with that. I'll share. <laughs> um, at that point, they did um, fully cape the elk and, you know, took it off, all the way off the skull because it was too much weight on the mule with the cape in the center. And they had to flip, you know, the, the elk head where the antlers would go down the side of the mule and not touch him and or tickle him because he did not like the antlers touching him. All right. So, so Amy, you, you make a good point. Um, living in bear country and having hunted in bear country for the last almost 30 years, folks need to know if they're going to be in bear country, whether it's grizzly bear country or black bear country, because they will come in. You need to carry bear spray. You need to have those precautions. You need to understand that if a grizzly bear wants your meat, he's going to take your meat or she's going to take your meat. And there's very little you can do about it. And so, right. um, being safe and being prepared as you guys were is extremely important. And, you know, also having the mental attitude that if you lose uh animal to bear, that's just the way nature intended it. And there's not a whole lot you can do about it. So we made a safety, a safety decision, you know, is that it was not safe to continue to stay there in the dark. So I just, you know, left it overnight and came back and took my chances. Of course I didn't go back. Right, the guides did. Right. A couple other things we want to bring up here um, before we sign off is, you know, understand how you're going to get your stuff home if you're driving or flying, you know, um, with with the issue with COVID-19 recently, there has been uh, a lot of meatpacking plants that haven't been able to process beef, sheep, pigs, other things. And so a lot of the, your your meat processing plants or, or companies that would normally be available to process game meat come hunting season are already putting notices out that they're not going to be available because they're already backlogged for their domestic uh, workload. So know how you're going to get that meat processed, how you're going to get it home, how much it's going to cost to ship. Um, you know, shipping frozen meat is not cheap. Um, we, what, you know, as ethical hunters and conservationists, we want to use as much as we can, but unfortunately we see animals dumped everywhere uh, in every state. You know, so, you know, as, as Chris mentioned earlier, you know, talk to your taxidermist in the local area before you go. Find out if they're taking animals or whether they'll have storage or whether they can cape something out because it may save you a lot of hassle. And then, you know, finally, uh, understand that CWD and COVID-19, those issues are changing things almost on a daily basis. So really know before you go and, and do everything you can to ensure that you're you're prepping for your hunt correctly that you're, you know, after the hunt, you have everything taken care of and nothing's a surprise. Um, Chris, I know you and I have talked through the years. Some people think the taxidermy bills a shock when they get it, but comparatively considering everything else, if you're coming across country to hunt mule deer, it's should be included as part of it. And it's really not that much. It's, it's a fraction of that, but it's going to last a lifetime. Wouldn't you say? Well, you know, it's funny that that's, that hasn't changed in 30 some years. It probably won't change in 30 some years, but uh, I had talked earlier to Jody and mentioned that, you know, 75% of the people that make a decision, whether that mule deer, that elk gets put into a home is usually the wife or the female of the partnership. Uh, 
so that's the discussion that has to be made before you leave on both ends. You know, hey, if I'm successful, is this going to be put here in the home or is it going to be stuck out in a garage or a hunting camp? But the cost at the end of all these adventures and planning and then like our hunt this year, you know, four or five years waiting to get a tag to go in to hunt a mule deer is uh, something that preparation has has not just taken a day or a week or a month. It's been years in cases. But the communication that you have with a taxidermist can be twofold. He, you can go to an area and your taxidermist can call a taxidermist out there or vice versa. You go to one of the processor, they work with a taxidermist. You know, you're in a hurry. Leave that cape and those antlers there to get properly prepared to buy a taxidermist. Pay his bill, and then he ships them, you know, conventionally ground a lot less to your taxidermist back to wherever you come from. That way, you know, he's taking dozens of animals in at a time. You walk in the day you have to leave to go on a flight. It's going to be a salty bill because he's stopping everything else to accommodate you at that moment. Yeah, and and Amy, um, I'm assuming in in your hunt prep and your hunts, you, you know, you guys talk about taxidermy and meat care and getting things home, and you know the post hunt uh, cares and and prep tips that that you need to do to make sure that the hunt really doesn't end when you pull the trigger, or right. release the string. It really you know continues uh, for long afterwards. It's real important that. You know, our guests know that we're going to help them to make the decisions because sometimes they don't necessarily understand the different types of mounts that are available, the prep that goes into the different types of mounts. And one of the things I would say to a new mule deer hunter headed out west is if you have some recommendations locally for taxidermists, give them a call before you go. Ask them what their hours are. Ask them what kind of field prep they prefer. Can you drop it off at night with a cooler or how's the tagging process in your state? Because sometimes there's carcass tags in some states and other states there's not. The requirements for, um, you know, skinning your animal and leaving the sex um, organs in place. Those things, you know, we have to prep all of our guests for on our hunt so that they have an enjoyable experience and they learn something. But Number one, that relationship that we have with the, the meat processors and the taxidermists just by being friendly and calling and asking questions, sharing, you know, we try to share their information with other hunters so that we can improve their business. But, you know, they're busy. Taxidermists and meat processors get really busy when hunt season opens out west and you're out there second and third or fourth season. All of a sudden, you know, they're full and they're not going to take your animal. <laughs> so if I have a back, have a backup plan. <laughs> Yeah, and I, you know, one comment I would I would just make is that the couple of animals we've dealt with recently, um, going to a taxidermist, we we actually chose to to work with a local taxidermist where they were, and part of that was CWD concerns with the the white-tailed buck that my daughter shot was, you know, what I don't want to even have to worry about bringing this back to Colorado from Nebraska. It wasn't that far, but it was just easier to try to find somebody locally there. Um, and then for for my antelope when I shot it there again, it was it was a women's organized hunt that I did, and they had already already connected with a taxidermist. So, so, and then we, we made arrangements to either pick up or ship them out. And, and that may be another option as well. So you may have the person you want to work with locally and that's great. And you have to work through those uh, logistics, but if you want to look for somebody locally where you will be hunting, that's an option as well. We're getting close to, to wrapping this up. I'm going to turn it back to you guys for one final thoughts and then we'll, we'll go back to our hunt planning. 
Go ahead, Amy. Why don't you kick us off? For hunt planning? For final thoughts. Final thoughts on taxidermy. Yeah. I think it's just such an amazing experience to have that memory in my house. But And like Jody said, it's not about size um, and scoring, although I have some animals that have scored. But I also have um, memories of hunts I've had with friends and family that you know, there's nothing better than getting that crate in the mail from the taxidermist and the freight company arriving and saying, you know, you got a big crate here <laughs> and getting to open it up six months later. It's um, it's a joy for me. And I like to plan ahead and prepare for it because I want to have that mental attitude that I'm going to be successful and I'm going to have meat in the freezer and that I'll have some form of trophy, whether it's zero mount or full mount when I'm done. Yeah, that's that. We talked about this earlier. That that antelope that I had mounted. There's no trophy about that in terms of the the what people believe a trophy is about in terms of the biggest animal. He was a beautiful buck, but if to me it was every time I look at him now, it's it's just it brings me back to that moment in time and that experience, and and I'll never forget that. And and so it's celebration of of that animal and that experience for sure. So one of the thoughts that I wanted to pass on just in general about the preparation, um, we, we've talked about preparing before you go. We've talked about preparing after you're done. One of the things that I've I've learned along the way is also kind of being prepared to know where you're hunting and what you have to do to get that animal out of that area. Um, you may need to choose not to shoot an animal in a particular area if, if you're not going to be able to get them out efficiently enough or, or have to leave it behind. So being able to be prepared with, you know, you, Amy, you talked about the, you know, the three, three miles and, and that's, that's doable with, with horses. But if you had had to leave an animal there early season um, with, you know, packing it back and forth on your back and only you and maybe one other person, that may not have been a shot you were willing to take potentially, or you may not have been wanting to hunt there. That's something that we've, we've looked at as saying, okay, what's my exit strategy once I have an animal, if I'm hunting by myself, or do I have access to horses or do I have a friend or is there a trail or a road? So those are the things that you need to think through um, to make sure that you're doing the respect that that animal deserves when you kill it in a very remote place. When I'm hunting with my dad and we're glassing for animals on top of the mountain, down the valley, and we see animals, and I'm like, Daddy, look, that's a big one. I think that's a good one. And he'll say, Honey, we're not hunting in that zip code. <laughs> and he yep, means we we're not going down there after it, and we're not getting it out. So, so Chris, just any final thoughts or any tips uh, uh, before we wrap things up here? Um, yeah, all good points made so far. What I, what I would say to most people with, with getting involved with Western hunts, it's not a yearly or an annual thing anymore because of the point creep and the harder to get licensed, the trophy zones. I mean, I'm ex personally experiencing that this year. Uh, so the taxidermy end of it with the preparation, it sounds complicated, but most taxidermists, most meat, most meat processors, most guides, they deal with it annually. It's a business. They're glad to tell, talk about details and get you straightened out. Uh, you know, there's always a fee involved with a professional service. So don't be sticker shocked. I mean, shipping companies love to ship something from a tax service in Dubois to Pittsburgh, PA. I mean, that's a huge incurred cost for them, but it saves you time and money in the long run. So if you're planning a once in a lifetime, take the extra care the same as if it's a first time or only time 
The taxidermy bill at the end or the animal itself is the pinnacle ending of an accumulated energy put forth on the hunt. If you live out west like Steve and Jody are, you know, it's it's a little easier. You can drive home. You can drive to a processor. You can drive to a taxidermist. Uh, and you have an insight. But most people that don't have that luxury, contact the local taxidermy association, local taxidermist. Get their insight. You know, find out what, what they do. Because I've been doing it 37 years. Most taxidermists have some kind of preparation plan they can give you if you've never done anything like this before. So communication is the key. Yeah, and Steve, I wanted to just give a quick follow-up to, um, we talked a little bit about CWD. Uh, every state has, uh, they have their own regulations or they have their own guidelines. Uh, the one website that pulls that all together really well is cwd-info.org, which is the CWD, the Chronic Wasting Disease Alliance. And they have links to each of the state's CWD guidelines, uh, what they're required to do. They also have some good recommendations for hunters on on how you can ameliorate if you're hunting in a CWD zone. So again, cwd-info.org is a great resource for CWD. This year, we have to think about human disease as well. Uh, with COVID, there may be some restrictions, including potentials for self-quarantine before when you get home or things like that. Um, so I would encourage uh, people to also look for the state fish and wildlife agency COVID restrictions or even to the state guidelines of whatever state you're looking for. For state uh, fish and wildlife agencies, the Council to Advance Hunting and Shooting Sports, their website, cahss.org. That's a great resource for state agencies, state fish and wildlife agencies. But definitely know your COVID restrictions, know your CWD restrictions um, before you head out the door so that you understand what you're you're getting into. Amy, did you want to give a quick plug again for Sisterhood of the Outdoors and just let people know where to find you if they're interested in booking a hunt? Sure. It's sisterhoodoutdoors.com. And we do everything from hunting, shooting, and fishing, waterfowl, deer, turkey, duck, goose, everything we can possibly find that's fun in the outdoors. Um, our next trip is a couple weeks. We're going to Wyoming on a fly fishing pack trip outside of Cody, and we are following the guidelines for COVID. We are having issues with some quarantine states that her camp, some girls can't travel now because if they come home, they have to quarantine 14 days because they went to Wyoming and they'll lose their jobs. And so all of, all of this has affected everything we do. And we, it's just a real fluid situation, but as much as we can, we're going to take people outdoors safely and try to follow all the rules and regulations and stay abreast of what's going on. In any of the states where there's tag drawings, probably you don't have very much availability, but I know you have some other hunts that are available as well this year, right? We have whitetail in Georgia. That's a rifle hunt in December. We have a Sitka archery deer hunt, and it's in Maryland. Um, and the Missouri whitetail archery hunt, it's actually, we stay in Cincinnati, Iowa, but we hunt in Missouri because the lodge is real close to the border. But our farm that we hunt is in Missouri. So there's a lot, couple of whitetail opportunities, and we're booking waterfowl hunts. Um, so a lot of exciting things going on. Next weekend, I'm hosting a lady sight-in day at a local shooting park here in Tennessee. It's called Dead Zero Shooting Park. But I'm just making myself available with Joella Bates. Um, she's an archery instructor and Olympian. And 
we were like, hey, let's just do a free day, bring the ladies out, and we're going to teach you how to sight in your rifle and zero at 200 and shoot long range. We got some great rifles coming, and we're going to let the ladies also shoot some 3D targets with their bows and get some tips from Joella. Because it's that time. We need to start prepping for hunts, and that's what the sisterhood does. Great. Well, Jody, th- um, I just want to remind folks that, you know, the hunt is not just the harvest and the time you're out there. It's really year-round. Um, put as much preparation into the pre- and post-hunt cares as you do to the the actual uh, excursion in the outdoors. And one of the things I tell folks is, you know, after you harvest an animal, take a little bit of time to collect your thoughts. Think about what's next. I can't tell you how many times people have flipped animals over, started to make cuts up the ventral side. And I go, are you going to get the animal mounted? And they go, yeah. And I said, well, then we need to cut it differently. And that's just because they're excited and they've done things the same way. So really take some time, cherish the moment and don't ruin the rest of the, uh, the opportunity to get a good, uh, trophy mounted and to take care of your meat by rushing. Um, you'll have time. And so, um, with that, Jody, any closing thoughts? No, you know, I, your comments there just reminded me that that we shouldn't be looking at these preparation tips as onerous. This should be what builds the excitement for you. This is the stuff that that you're you're thinking about your hunt much longer than those five, ten days, whatever it will be that you're out in the in the woods and doing your hunt. And so, as as you said, it, it's a journey. It's an arc. The entire process is what you should be celebrating and and enjoying. So enjoy that prep process. Enjoy the scouting. Enjoy the looking at the Onyx map or talking out to your taxidermist or calling the biologist. Give yourself time to do it. That's part of that year-round cycle um, of what you should value and appreciate about the hunting process. Yeah, I know Chris and I have been waiting five years to get back to Wyoming to hunt in Western. So we're getting back there this year. So um, Chris, Amy, thank you. Uh, Good luck this hunting season. Hopefully we'll see some, we'll be able to come back and talk to you about the actual experience. That'd be great. Thanks, everybody. And so until next time, this is Jody Stemler. And I'm Steve Belinda. And thank you for talking Mule Deer. Thanks for talking Mule Deer with Steve Belinda and Jody Stemler. The Mule Deer Foundation is the only conservation group in North America dedicated to restoring, improving, and protecting mule deer and black-tailed deer and their habitat. MDF is a strong voice for hunters in access, wildlife management, and conservation policy issues. To find out more, visit www.muledeer.org and stay tuned for the next episode of Talking Mule Deer.